Hey, Thursday is December 1st. Aren't you glad? Yeah, I do. That would, yeah, like 24 shopping days. Okay. Uh, Thursday, we are entering into Advent. And for years, Tony and I began Advent at the Ryman Auditorium to hear some of the finest instrumental and vocal musicians in, in Nashville uh, put on a brilliant and beautiful presentation of the gospel called Behold the Lamb, composed by Andrew Peterson. Well, this year, the Ryman is coming to Spanish River, and that is this coming Thursday. And I would encourage you, if you've not done so yet, to go online and buy a ticket not only for yourself and someone you, in your family, but also for a couple of friends and invite them along. The first half of the, the presentation is a fantastic concert done by some of the best musicians in Nashville. And then in the second half, you will hear a presentation of the prophecies, the narrative story that runs all the way through the Old Testament that leads up to the birth of Jesus. It's a wonderful way to enter into the promise of Advent as we come to the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. So that's this coming Thursday evening. And, um, you know, for a long time, I, I, Al pointed out, he said, you just, say December, you just say December 1st. December 1st can sound like it's a long way off. It's Thursday. So there's not much time left, actually, to pick up those tickets. So please do so. Invite some friends. It's going to be a wonderful celebration for you and your family. I'd like for you to turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. One of my favorite things I love to hear is someone come up to me and say, you're not going to believe this because I know that what's about to come is going to be an incredible story. And I sort of imagine that's a little bit what happened on resurrection morning when Mary Magdalene came into the apostles whose last sight of Jesus was him carrying a cross to Golgotha. They knew he had died. They knew he'd been buried. And then Mary went to the tomb, and of course, the, the stone was rolled away. She heard the angelic message, he is not here, he is risen. And I can imagine her running back to the apostles who were in hiding for fear of their lives and walking in and saying, guys, you are not going to believe this. And they came to believe it. And then they reported it to us. And it's on the basis of those reports that we have faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to talk to you this morning about what it means to have faith, to believe. And we're doing that through the lens of Jesus' very first message in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 that we have recorded for us in Mark's gospel. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And this is the word of the Lord. Won't you pray with me? Lord, I thank you and we bless you for your word which is living and which pierces to our hearts. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would do that today. Let your word Pierce our hearts so that our faith in you might grow, that those who do not yet possess that grace would discover your goodness bestowing it upon them. And for this, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
one of the things that we care about are it's the whole creation. We care about the air we breathe. We, we care about the water that we drink. We care about the way in which the environment is stewarded, and we should, because the whole created order testifies to the goodness of God. His invisible attributes are seen, clearly, Paul writes in Romans 1, through what he has made. But one of the environments that we should care for, one of the resources that have been given to us is the gift of language. And language can itself be distorted. Language can be polluted, not only by twisting the meaning of words, but by, in many ways, using them loosely so that we don't really stop and consider the impact that those words have. And we looked at that last week with the first word of Jesus' command, repent and believe. We looked at repentance last week. I want you to notice this second word, believe. And I want us to dig down into that today. To repent, that means to turn from our idols, to turn from our sins, and turn to God. To grieve our sins, to ask and confess for, for we confess our sins and ask for forgiveness and to receive that from the Lord. But notice, he doesn't simply say repent, he says repent and believe. Repent and believe. This is a verb form of the noun. It's the same word for faith. It's just the action that you take. And we've noted that both of these are gifts. We looked last week at God granting people repentance to turn from their sins. We discovered it as a gift. And some of you maybe at Thanksgiving this week around the table said, I'm thankful for the gift of repentance. And all of us can be. But there's another gift, the gift of faith. Faith is a gift, and it's a command. But one of the things you discover as you study the Bible is that whatever God commands of us, he provides for us. He commands faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. He goes on to say, the writer of Hebrews, that all who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He goes on to say, apart from faith, you can't please God. So faith is certainly commanded, and Jesus says here, repent and believe. But here, again, is the principle. Whatever God commands of us, he provides for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, a verse that I'm sure some of you have committed to memory, Paul writes this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that the faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one should boast in any of our own works. So the kind of faith we're talking about here is, in fact, a gift from God. The word faith is used, of course, in our, our times in a lot of different ways. Sometimes people are, are referred to in the media as a person of faith. But that's just sort of a general term. Or you may hear somebody say, well, I have faith in my doctor. Or I have faith in my, in my trainer. That's all good. I get that. But that's not the way the Bible uses the term faith. When the, the Bible uses the term faith, occasionally it refers to the content of what we believe. Jude wrote, I want you to eagerly contend for the faith 
which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Or John writes and he says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So there is a content to what we believe. There are the, 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 the principles, the doctrines, the dogmas of what is commonly considered to be the Christian faith. We summarize those in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, and so on. But that, while vital, is not what the the Scriptures mean by believing. Those aspects of the faith, those objective propositional truths are critical. They're the data of what we believe. We believe that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, that he died for our sins. But, beloved, those facts are only one part of what's generally considered to be the exercise of faith. There has to be, along with those facts, a glad acceptance in our heart of those facts. We would say, well, well, well yes, th- those facts are not only true, but I gladly accept them. And that, that glad acceptance is an important part of it. And then there is a resting of your life in those truths that are revealed. You put the whole weight of your life upon it. There's an old illustration of this uh, using a chair. Um, you could look at a chair and you could say, well, um, do you believe, oh, look, here's a chair appearing magically. Thank you. So I say, well, it's a chair. How many of you believe it's a chair? It has all the qualities and properties of a chair. It's objectively and propositionally a chair. Now, how many of you would gladly sit in it? Well, yes, as long as it's not on the platform, Pastor, I might gladly sit in it. I'll sit, yes, I think it, I th- I think, I think it will hold my weight. I think it'll be okay. But why isn't it holding your weight? Because you're what? You're not in it. I know it's early. You've only had one cup of coffee, but there you go. The, the truth is you not only have to have the objective sense of it and believe and gladly accept that it would hold your weight, you'd have to actually put your weight in it for it to be of any service to you. So there is the facts of faith. There's the acceptance of the facts. And then there's the trusting of those facts. And that's really what delineates, in some ways, the faith that a person has and the faith that the demons have. You see, the propositional truths, the objective propositional truths that are revealed in Scripture, that are testified to us by the apostles who saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead, (laughs) those those are believed by demons. You can believe the facts of the faith, and go to hell. The demons are excellent theologians. In the book of James, it says the demons believe and tremble. They shake, they tremble at the knowledge of what is true. So believing is more than simply acknowledging with your head the propositional truths that are in the Bible. There's something more involved. You're not only going, yeah, it's a chair, and yeah, it'll hold me up. You got to what? You got to get in it. You got to rest the weight of your whole life on it. Okay, that's a good analogy so far, but here's where the analogy breaks down. How many of you can see the chair? How many of you have seen Christ? 
You see, this is why that analogy, while explaining those three elements of what it means to believe, as all analogies are, is inadequate. Because you can see the chair, you can test the chair. But the scriptures say we walk by faith and not by sight. You can see the chair, test the chair. But Jesus hasn't walked into your living room and done for you what he did for Thomas. In John chapter 20, we come into this remarkable event where Jesus appears to the one apostle who wasn't there when Mary Magdalene showed up and said, you're not going to believe this. He's alive. Thomas, I don't know what he was doing, but he, is the, he was not there. He's the patron saint of every Christian who missed the previous worship service that was the best ever. <laughs> oh, you should have been there. What? What happened? The one Sunday I miss. Now, he said to them, no, 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 no. No, he's a rational guy. I saw it. He's dead. Unless I put my hands in the wounds on his hands and his feet, unless I put my hand inside that opening in his side that was put there through a Roman spear, I'm not, I'm not believing this. And then, and then the next week, the next Sunday, Jesus appears in the room. He goes, hey, Thomas, Thomas, put your hands here in the wounds. Place your hand in my side. And Thomas bows before me. He says, my Lord and my God. Now, it was necessary that Thomas, because he was an apostle, have that kind of vision, that personal visitation from Christ. Like the apostles, he sees Christ because that witness by the apostles is what allows us to hear their word and believe. They were eyewitnesses of those events. And we receive their eyewitness, which they not only sealed by having it written down, but sealed with their own blood as martyrs. So we have evidence for the reliability of the reports. We can trust them. But it's not the kind of evidence that you have in a science lab. It's not the kind of proof you have in a logical formula. No, that's not the way it works. That's not the way faith is. Once I was out preaching doing street preaching in London. And I was with a friend of mine, and we were at the University of London Union. And we were preaching, and people were staying away by the millions. <laughs> no one was paying the slightest attention to my friend as he's, as he's going on. And then finally, he leaned over to me, and he said, he said, heckle me. I said, what? What? Heckle you? He goes, yeah, 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 heckle me. Say something. Say something that kind of starts an argument. Then people will gather around and, and they'll listen. It's like, well, okay. So he starts in again, and I said, prove there's a God. And he goes, ask me something else. <laughs> I just went, get out of here. We're going home. We got to try a different method next week. You see, when people talk about proof, and he didn't really know what to do with this, they often mean the kind of proof you have in a lab. But the way that laboratory scientific proof works is a science experiment has to be something which is repeated. It has to be verifiable in that way. But God's, you can't get God under a microscope. You can't get the resurrection into a lab. That's not the way it works. What you have is evidence. But all of the evidence from history stacked up 
does not create faith. You say, oh, well, I know what would create faith. A miracle. If I just saw miracles, if I could just see a miracle, there's probably somebody sitting here this morning saying, I wish this guy would wrap it up so we could get to lunch. I'm just here because, you know, I got talked into this thing. And, and if I, you know, and, and if God's real and he just did a miracle, then I'd believe. Well, Jesus did miracles and people still didn't believe. He said to one city, if the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, that city would still be standing. They'd have repented long ago. Miracles don't make people into believers. They don't. They may stun them. They may cause wonder. They may cause bewilderment. They may cause amazement. But they don't give birth to faith, not this kind of faith, not living faith, the faith that's a gift from God. You see, even the sight of Jesus Christ won't create that. The popular atheist Richard Dawkins, he's an Oxford professor, said that not, this was in a radio interview a couple of years ago, he said not even the second coming of Jesus would convince him that God exists. He said, if I saw Jesus Christ Come with the clouds and stand down here on the earth. I would look at it and go, well, he has to be an alien from another planet. Now, the reason for that is because Dawkins has what's called a presupposition of anti-supernaturalism. Would you all say that with me? Oh, no, wait. What do I mean by a presupposition of anti-supernaturalism? He presupposes that we have a closed universe. It is only a material universe. It is you, All that exists is only what you can see and feel in that sense of repeated experimental endeavor. And that's why faith doesn't come by sight. My Lord and my God, and Jesus said to him, Thomas, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who believe without seeing, which is you and me, if you believe. But that's why faith is a gift from God. Paul writes in Romans that not everyone has faith. If you have faith, faith in Jesus Christ, the facts of the faith, the glad acceptance of those facts, and the, that, last, that, last, that last step, putting the full weight of your life upon Jesus Christ, that's a gift from God. To believe in Jesus Christ does not mean that you simply affirm what is true or even gladly affirm what is true. It means that you take the whole of your existence and you put it into his nail-scarred hands and you say, Christ, I trust in you. I don't understand it all. But beloved, that's another misconception of faith. We think we're supposed to understand it all. I see people sometimes object to little children being baptized. Well, I don't think they understand it all. Oh, but you do. <laughs> like if you're 32, I've got this. Well, they don't understand enough. But faith in Christ is not something which is based on whether or not you can pass a heavenly entrance exam. How many of you are glad it doesn't come down to finals? 
In Psalm 22, the psalmist wrote, Thou didst make me trust in you when I was upon my mother's breast. Wow! While a nursing infant, David said, while he was a nursing infant, faith was in him. That's an astonishing statement. Faith is a gift from God. How does it come about? It comes about through the agency of God's word and God's spirit. And they meet. The gospel and the word of God is proclaimed and you, you have it either from a parent or a Sunday school teacher or maybe a worker in your high school or, or somebody working on college campus, somebody in the workplace, somebody shares the seed of God's word. And then the Holy Spirit rains upon the seed of that word and it germinates in your soul and suddenly even though you can't understand everything about it and you realize there's a lot of mystery in who God is because you can't fit him under a microscope and he doesn't always satisfy your intellectual longings, he doesn't obligate himself to answer every single question that you have. He, in fact, leads you deeper into a mystery. You nevertheless trust him and you learn to trust him even when things are horrible. When Job lost everything, when everything was terrible, his wife said to him, curse God and die. Wow, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> curse God and die. And he said, though he slay me, I will trust him. If God kills me, I'll trust him. That's faith. And the world doesn't understand. But that's saving faith. That's the kind of faith that believes and trusts in Christ. Why do you need to believe and trust in Christ? Well, it's this. In order to enter heaven, you have to have perfect righteousness. Perfect. Not kind of righteous, not sort of righteous. Perfect righteousness. And that means for you and I, it's already too late. Because <laughs> we're not. But the scriptures say that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He took our sin in himself so that we might become, listen to this, the righteousness of God in him. He joins us to Christ and Christ takes all of our sin to himself and then he transfers all of his righteousness and counts it as our own. He counts it as our own. How perfect is Jesus' righteousness? Well, that's perfect righteousness. That righteousness is now counted, imputed to us. God counts it as our own, and he does this on the basis of Christ's death for us on the cross. And that's what sets apart Christian faith from everything else. There are many faiths in the world, but every single other faith in the world will say to you, in some way, build a resume. If you are just good enough, if you will just follow these seven principles, if you will just do this and this and this, then maybe when you get to the end of your life, you will come to nirvana, you will come into heaven, you will be accepted by God. Every single other religion in the world that believes in a God or gods will say, you can find acceptance if you will do enough. But the problem is, once you get on that treadmill, 
you never know if you've done enough. Paul lived like that. The Apostle Paul. He says in Philippians chapter 3, <laughs> Philippians chapter 3, he said, I had a righteousness of my own derived from the law. I had a resume. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a theologian of theologians. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, a, I'm, I'm big stuff. And then according to the law, I was blameless. Thou shalt have no other, I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. I don't have any. You shall not make any graven images or bow down to them. Never done it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I don't. You shall, you shall keep the Sabbath day. I do it strictly. And he went through the list, and I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm really doing well here. Check, 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 until he got to number nine. You shall not covet. And then he looked in his own heart, and Paul had to be honest. When he got into his own heart, he says in Romans 7, when I got in there, I discovered that I was a person who had coveting in my heart. What does it mean to covet? It means you look at what somebody else has, and you go, I want their Lamborghini. I want that house. I want that ring. I want that job. Paul looked at somebody one day and went, I want that guy's camel. <laughs> and then he knew he'd blown it. And as a good theologian, he knew that if you broke one of God's commandments, you've broken what? All of them. So not even... The most religious person in the world could do it. Same thing happened to Martin Luther. Luther, Martin Luther, 16th century leader. He was an Augustinian monk, a theological professor at Wittenberg University. He was a Roman Catholic priest. And listen to what he wrote. I long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean... The justice, the righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although I was an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in my conscience and I had no confidence in my merit that it would assuage him. And therefore, I did not love God. I hated him. He hated God because he knew that God's standards were so high and he couldn't attain them. He knew that even though he was doing all the theological work and doing all the monkery that any monk could ever monk, it was never going to be enough. And yet I clung to Paul and I had a yearning to know what he meant. And night and day I pondered it until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement in Romans, the just shall live by faith, faith. And then I grasped that this righteousness, which is through grace and mercy, is received by faith, faith, trust. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. Who is your righteousness? Christ is your righteousness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, Christ is our wisdom 
our sanctification, our redemption, and our righteousness. Now, here's the amazing thing. This is the important thing. In Hebrews chapter 13, 8, listen to what the scriptures say. Jesus Christ is the same, the same. He never changes yesterday, today, and forever. He is your righteousness. Your righteousness is not something inside of you. Your righteousness is in Christ. You sang a few minutes ago. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Eric led us in prayer. Lord, you don't ask us to look within. If you look within, you'll be distressed. If you look around, you'll be depressed. You look up above at Christ. My friend, at that point, you will rejoice because he is your righteousness. And here's the thing. He doesn't change. Your righteousness is unchanging. If tomorrow you are not quite as good a Christian as you are today, you're just as righteous tomorrow as you are today because your righteousness is not yours, it's his, and it never changes. And it was given to you as a gift. And so when you get to heaven and you stand there and they say, why should we let you in? You don't get out your resume and go, well, I taught Sunday school. I, uh, I, 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 I know Psalm 23, kind of. Why should we let you in? On the throne, right in front of you, will be a lamb standing as if slain. And you will point to him and you will say, I'm with him. And he will say, She's with me. He's with me. He's your righteousness. And the joy you have that day, the assurance you have that day is a joy and an assurance you can have right now because you trust him. You put your faith in Christ. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your, your own sight. Even, even Jacob Marley knew that, right? Scrooge said it. Marley I don't, I, don't, I don't trust my senses. You could be a, a bit of undigested beef. You can't trust your senses. You can't trust your feelings. But my friends, you can put your trust in Jesus Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. We will go through many changes, but because he never changes, you can trust him. And I'm telling you this morning, if you haven't yet put your trust in Christ, Hear what Jesus said, Mark chapter 1, repent and believe, believe. Take the full weight of your life, walk over to Christ, and sit down, put the full weight of your life in the hands of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the unchanging God. The same, yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that you do not call us to look within. You call us to look up. Thank you that you call us to set our minds on things above where Christ is, who is our righteousness. Lord, we put no trust in any merit of our own. We trust entirely in your life lived perfectly in obedience to the law, in your death, which was according to the law, and in your resurrection, which brought us into the new covenant, which transcends the law, and, and writes it upon our hearts so that we desire to please you. We put our trust in you, Jesus. Thank you that you are our righteousness. 
And so, Lord, would you help any here today who've not yet believed to do so? Not just to believe what is true, but to put the full weight of their life, the full weight of their need for forgiveness and cleansing, to take away every, every spot and stain that we can't remove, all the regret, all the things from the past we wish we could go back and make better and can't. Only you can cleanse. And so we come to you, Lord Jesus, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God. I come and I worship you. You are my righteousness. Let's worship him.